Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia and here's my co-host Morgan. Hello. Uh, so this is part two of our London Film Festival slash New York Film Festival coverage. Um, we already posted part one. We, we did record this all in one go and kind of split it down the middle. So I recommend listening to part one first. And this one, um, I'm just going to sort of segue straight into the episode, which is also pre-recorded. In this half, we discussed um, Roma and a whole host of really interesting movies that we are recommending and a couple that we're going to give full episodes to uh, later in the year. So here we go with the rest of the conversation. Uh, well, let's move on to a movie that we agree about, uh, which is Roma. I knew literally fuck all about this movie before I saw it, which Morgan found very entertaining. Um, this film is like wholeheartedly very hyped um, among film critics. It's not really sort of emerged into the mainstream yet because it's not out yet. Um, it's another movie that's being distributed by Netflix, but it's definitely not like made by Netflix. It's the it's the latest film by Alfonso Cuaron, who you will all have seen films by because he directed Harry Potter 3. <laughs> <laughs> but he also directed, you know, Children of Men, uh, Gravity, various others. He's like a highly acclaimed filmmaker at the top of his game who rarely puts a foot wrong, if ever. And this movie is... I would say, I mean, it's definitely like the most experimental and unmainstream of the movies that I have seen and or know of. Um, it's a black and white drama set in the early 1970s in Mexico. It's kind of semi-autobiographical because it's inspired um, by the nanny slash housemaid who raised him as a child. And that is the main character in this movie. Um, she is played by... I, I mean, I guess you can describe her as a non-professional actress because this is her first role, but she might wind up becoming an actress after this because it's just going to get like a million Oscar nominations, hopefully. Her name is um, Yelitsa Aparicio um, and she's, I think, a preschool teacher. <laughs> um, but she is in this movie as this housemaid um, working for this sort of wealthy middle-class family where the other main characters are another maid that she works with and um, the sort of wealthy and slightly distant but not particularly terrible mother and her all of her kids there's like four kids and her husband's pretty distant and doesn't really appear in the movie very much but it's kind of crap like the men in this movie are crap but not like in a way that seems like it's intentional commentary more just like in the way that seems pretty realistic (laughs) i mean well what do you mean by intentional commentary because i think they're absolutely like horrible on purpose (laughs) and yeah okay yeah no i there's a scene in a hospital with the father of oh, this yeah, family. Oh no, yeah, I mean, he's definitely like, meant to be. He is definitely meant to be like an absolute shit in like a very recognizable like bad husband way. It's one of those movies where you know whenever anyone makes a feminist movie, the actresses then do, a, do go and do interviews where they say it's not a feminist movie. And I think when I was reading an interview with the lead actress to this, I was like, in this particular case, I'm okay with you saying, oh, in my opinion, it's not a feminist movie. You know, because it's. There's so many other elements and it feels like because everything is so kind of subtle and organic, it doesn't feel like there's really intensive commentary happening in the same way as when you're watching a movie, you know, the Nicole Kidman movie Destroyer that we just saw, that I just saw at the festival where it's like, oh yes, she's taking on like a man's role. Well, but I think, I I agree that it's not like rah-rah, whatever, but, and it's also, you know, very much about class. So I found the the mother pretty unpalatable, but not unsympathetic. I found that performance, um, I cannot remember the actress's name. She's probably going to get nominated for things this year. 
but she, I thought she did a really, really good job because she's occasionally really unpleasant to the main character. But, and like clearly doesn't think about her very much as a person. Yeah. But you're not supposed to be like this evil bitch. Like she yeah. is a human also. It's 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 entitlement, right? It's an illustration yes. of entitlement because yeah. like the whole movie is centering around someone who is a servant and the people who are taking her for granted and they're not like oh here's like a villainous sort of like tyrant who's whipping her all the time or whatever and it's not meant to be a story about like oh how tragic it is that her life has been ruined by the fact that she's a servant because you know most people have not great jobs and also it's 1970 in Mexico City but it just achieves a level of balance the main character is just so kind of emotionally complex and open she has so much love but at the same time you're like this love is not deserved by these (laughs) shitty rich children and like yeah (laughs) i found a lot about this movie really fascinating and obviously moving and just like beautiful but what basically winds up happening is that this is a little bit of a spoiler but it's fine um that both she and the mother wind up kind of left in the lurch by the men in their lives which is bad for various reasons for them. And so you have these kind of two parallel stories with these women who are kind of dealing with a similar thing and mostly can't really connect about it, but then can occasionally. And then there's the other servant who she's also dealing with, who's clearly like her really close friend and is helping her. And then she's dealing with these children. I found the children actually incredibly sympathetic and not massively Yeah, the children bratty. were all very likable, but it was more just sort of like the children... Yeah, the ch- it's not like, oh, here's like a bunch of Dudley Dursleys, you know? But it's also like, it is just an intrinsically strange relationship to anyone who has not like grown up with a living nanny because the kids are all very aware that the main character, Cleo, is their employee. So it's someone who's like kind of an authority figure, but they can also kind of tell her what to do. Oh, for sure. But, I mean, the sort of fucked up thing, right, is that they, like, love her more than the mom. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, this this person is the mother figure. Yeah. I have seen how that unfolds, because I do know some people who were raised by nannies. Yeah. And it was very predictable what happened. Yep. Um, But even if the movie isn't making, like, a commentary on feminism, all of that stuff with those various female characters... I found so sort of powerful and compelling. And the fact that the men are total non-entities in the film. Like, this is a movie about women. 100%. The men are irrelevant. Um, When they show up, they definitely feel like distinct and humorous people. Like, they're basically objects of comedy. And, uh, I mean, I always find, like, classifying a work of art as, like, a feminist work of art kind of, like, a useless exercise anyway. But... This strikes me as in many ways like a classic example of that because it is so thoroughly concerned with women's experiences in certain ways that we can't really talk about without spoiling the movie. But um, I also like, I don't think this was experimental actually at all. It was like classical. It really harkens back to like, I mean, I've heard a lot of people comparing it to, like, classic Italian cinema. I haven't seen a lot of that. Yeah, I don't, I definitely don't know anything about classic Italian cinema. Yeah, but it also, like, it reminded me of, um, 
the Ingmar Bergman film Fanny and Alexander, which is like seven hours long. It was uh, it was aired as a miniseries, but it's considered a movie. And like, I hate that when people now are like, well, my 10 hour television show, I really thought it was a film, but like Fanny and Alexander is a, like, it's a movie. And it's all about like childhood and this big family. And there is a big party scene in this that really reminded me of that. But it also just reminded me of like big novels with lots of characters. And, like this, it's well, it's it's incredibly immersive. Yeah. So like, there's like kind of the two things that I was thinking about. Like, first of all, this movie is definitely like the most moving thing I saw at the festival. Like, it's the one that had the most intense emotional response from me and like the most intense lasting response because after I watched the film I was initially like that's a really great movie and I I did cry a lot and not for like the superficial sentimental reasons you cry in a Pixar movie you know but like about 40 hours later elements of it just kept like trickling through my brain and I was like oh god it was just so brilliant like the way he framed this shot and all this kind of stuff the way the whole setting is illustrated is like I said really immersive and if you've seen Children of Men, you can kind of imagine from like the final sequence how that might work. Because like Children of Men is famous for this long sequence where everything's filmed in one shot and there's it's very carefully orchestrated with like loads of extras and loads of stuff going on in the background. And this film is essentially like that, but not in sort of a high energy way. So there's several scenes where you're just in Mexico City and it just it's as if you are in Mexico City in 1971 like it just feels completely real and the party scene like Morgan says also feels like I was just like oh wow it's just like my personal memories of being in a wealthy Mexican family <laughs> like it was just like it was just like you're feeling nostalgia for something that you've never experienced and every single character is played by an actor you will not know so that kind of adds to that feeling and also it's completely naturalistic without feeling like one of those movies that's like really drearily realistic because it's not a realistic movie. There are like the whole thing is positioned. So there's like, you know, there's loads of moments of like visual symbolism and like the introductory credits are this really, really long shot of just water being swept over tiles where you see this sort of you see the sort of shadow of a plane traveling overhead and like this framing device of the courtyard walls around it and stuff. So it's like that shot sort of sets you up into the right mental space to be watching the rest of the film and to be really sort of analytical about visual and auditory stuff on like a symbolic level while also being like, okay, it's time for your brain to like chill out and really absorb like a lot of really great emotions. <laughs> well, what's so amazing about it is that my understanding is I haven't still haven't read that much about it because I think they're going to go into like full hardcore press mode when it actually comes out here is um but my understanding is that it's like very very highly autobiographical and like not yes. like we know it's autobiographical obviously but like I think a lot of the stuff that happens in this movie like ha happened to him um but it's from the point of view of this other person and yet the movie itself is not nostalgic in the sense that like the way it is crafted is very very the cinematography is very crisp the camera does move but it is it tends to be pretty still for did you a notice lot of the movie. they don't use close-ups yep 
And it's very immersive, but you're right that it is kind of asking you to really pay attention to the framing, to the way it's constructed. And so it is this kind of strange, like, double think of, like, being incredibly emotionally powerful while also being really, really um, formally rigorous that is unbelievably hard to achieve. Like, I don't know how you do this. I mean, it's it's being an astoundingly talented person who's already made, like, six really good movies. <laughs> yeah. And um, Guillermo del Toro introduced the movie for us at NIF, which was a surprise and was very exciting. There were two young ladies next to me who were beside themselves. It was very funny. <laughs> um, and it was, in a way, like, kind of cooler to have him do it than Cuaron. Like, I don't know what Cuaron would have said, but it was really neat to have del Toro talk about it because he was sort of giving his context for it and his sort of reading of the movie, which was all this stuff about like the like profundity of memory. But the thing he said was that a ton of the sets for this film, like the streets that they're like big, huge boulevards in Mexico city were built on sound stages because they were destroyed in the earthquake that happened however many years ago, like a decade ago or something. And like, it had to be perfect. So they just fucking built like this neighborhood. It looks real. It looks like a fucking documentary. You would never know. And there are also a number of scenes with a huge, huge number of extras, which costs a lot of money. And you do not see that very often in like tiny indie movies because you it just costs a lot of money to do like a big scene like that and i don't know what the budget was for this film but it, a lot it costs a lot of money you can tell it costs a lot of money according to wikipedia 15 million dollars no shit that is just crazy but like even even 15 million dollars for a movie like this is huge like that is a ton of money for a film in Spanish, no movie stars, about a maid, right? Like, it's just not... And if you are Alfonso Cuaron, and you're, like, one of the most famous directors on the planet, and you've won an Oscar, you can use your power in the correct way. Yeah, this is literally the opposite of the Coen brothers. Yeah. Because this movie is... I use the word masterpiece too much, but this movie is a masterpiece. Oh, absolutely. And I still think Children of Men is his best film of the ones I've seen. I'm missing a couple earlier ones. And part of that is that I am so emotionally attached to Children of Men, but I still do think it's... Yeah, me too. I mean, but it's also like with these two films, they're so different that there's no particular need to compare. Yeah, for sure. But it's just wild to me that anyone can do this. Like, this is just an incredible feat. I mean, it, it, it really... Sometimes, unless you're like a real film buff, it can sometimes be quite difficult to articulate like oh this person is a really good director because often it's just like translated as like if someone's made a good film they're a good director which obviously is true but in this I think it's very easy to understand why he's a good director for all of the reasons we've just articulated because <laughs> it's such a complex piece of machinery with all these moving parts especially if you have seen Children of Men and or Gravity right because they could not be more different from this. What you said about the sort of big scenes with stuff happening in the background and Children of Men is a really good 
uh, comparison to some of the stuff that happens in this. But stylistically, the way the camera moves is very, very different in yes. this film. And also, both of those movies, in terms of the way the characters interact, and also the thing with close-ups, it's like a normal movie, like the way a blockbuster is shot. Before I write my review next week, I need to look up more stuff about like how close-ups work, sort of how they're used in films. Because I, I did not go to any film classes. But I think it's sort of like the way the close-ups are used, you know, it's like to give you a really intimate look at someone's sort of emotional response to someone, something, or to show like the two halves of a conversation. Like especially on TV, you just have like really basic shots where they have like a camera behind each person and they just cut between them. But in this, it's it's like you're in the room, but it's not like the thing where it's like, oh, you're a spectator that's sort of surveilling the scene. It's more like just to be more present, but not to have the feeling of falseness that you get when you know there's a camera shoved in someone's face. Yeah. Which you sometimes get in like movies. Whereas in this, it's like you can just see someone who's in the room and you can see all of their surroundings and the way other people's body language is interacting with them. And it just makes for like a really interesting and memorable kind of experience visually. Yeah. No, it's it's true. And there's one shot in the movie that I can remember that is really close on someone's face that still has a bunch of stuff going on in the background. Um, there's a fire in the shot. I don't, there's someone singing, if you remember what I'm talking about. And it's really striking because it's really unusual for the visual, like, style of the movie. But certainly compared to, like, Gravity, which is this, like, CGI thing where the camera's, like, spinning around the whole time, whatever. Like, this is just so different from that. And, like, Gravity also is about a woman and, like, Sandra Bullock's really great in that movie, but it's not... It's it's not like it's like problematic in any way, right? Like it's it's really good. The, she's good in it. The role's good, whatever. But this and he's had other good female characters in his films before for sure. But I would never have expected him to do this. <laughs> like I, I didn't think he was sexist at all. But there's a difference between being a male director who isn't sexist and then like producing this it's it's like paul thomas anderson doing phantom thread last year where you're like whoa that's remarkable when you when you know the kind of the thing about it being inspired by his the women who raised him yeah it feels very illustrative because part of the reason why so many male storytellers don't write stories about women is like for the very obvious reason that the only women they are intimate with and as adults are sexual partners yeah. Right. So and like the whole the whole debate that we have all had for like the past million years and Virginia Woolf has expounded on at length is that a lot of men find it very difficult because of society to imagine women's interior lives, which is the whole problem with all of the media that we discuss. And I'm sure you're all aware of it. But with this, it's just like he has thought and analyzed in great detail and presumably discussed a lot with this woman in reality what her life was like and combined that with his own memories and has a tremendous sense of imagination and historical vision and is able to think about how these women would be interacting as human beings in this scenario which is literally impossible for a lot of people 
Yeah, I mean, even disregarding the, like, gender aspect, which you can't with this movie, but just, like... Yeah, but the- even disregarding that, it's very hard to... Like, writing is hard, right? It's like it's like just being a writer and a creator and managing to get inside someone's he- like head to that literary level. And not even just the writing, but just, like, as a person, the act of empathy that he is performing in this movie for this woman who he like it's dedicated to her she's been at premieres like he and like i mean you don't need that to tell how much he loves her you can just watch the movie but like it's an astonishing tribute to a person right like it's really and that's that's the thing that makes it so beautiful i think on top of everything else is that like it's just an act of love for someone and that's not how movies usually work (laughs) yeah like I saw a thing today. It was like a quote from Aaron Sorkin, where he was he's he's based a couple of characters on his ex girlfriends, but he's like he based a character on one of his ex girlfriends, and he'd like just written a quip at her, which was like God made you with the body of a hot woman, but like the brain of an ugly person, and it's like oh you've invented a really great sexist quip to like put down your girlfriend, and then written a, a character about her, and it's like like shitty female characters he's written that are like based on his ex girlfriends, and it's like that's literally the opposite of this. And it's just such an obvious way to like illustrate the differences in the way this pans out with people who are actually thinking about what other people are thinking and people who are just like, here's another person in my life that I'm definitely going to use for inspiration when they're actually understanding what's going on. Right. Uh, yeah, those are, those are the, the two ends of the male spectrum yes. there. <laughs> Alfonso Cuaron and Aaron Sorkin can't get more different. Um. So why don't we finish up with just uh, a couple short notes on a few other things we saw yeah i would just like to mention the one other thing i saw that i thought was really great um was the new film by pavel pavlikowski who did uh ida a couple years ago which won the foreign language oscar which i totally loved uh and this new movie is called cold war it's kind of an interesting double bill with ida because they both uh take place during the cold war in poland um and are both shot in a very similar way they are this is also in black and white, like Roma, although it looks very different. And it's a sort of love story between these two musicians who kind of can't ever quite make it work. And they wind up sort of going back and forth on each side of the wall on the border. And um, it is 90 minutes long. So I immediately was like, fantastic. Love it already. But it covers like 20 years. And it's just these little bits and pieces of their lives quite quickly and there's lots of great music in it and sort of understated commentary on the soviet regime in a way that i thought was really effective um and i just thought it was beautiful the actors are also both really really great in it um so that is going to get quite a bit of attention i think because it's a really great beautiful foreign film by a guy who already won an oscar so i would recommend that if uh you guys have a chance to see it and you have a couple that you're going to mention here because you have seen more movies than yeah. I did. I mean, I I saw 17 movies. Yeah. And I'm not going to talk about all of them. Like some of them um yeah, some of them were really good. So the ones I'm going to talk about here are Lizzie, um Outlaw King, Arctic, Beautiful Boy and Destroyer, a couple of which I'll only talk about for like a few seconds. But um so Destroyer is this movie which Morgan is greatly looking forward to and I will not spoil too much about, but I feel like it should be on people's radar because 
Um, it's a Nicole Kidman movie, which is always a good start because she's excellent and also makes good choices, which is a good combo because sometimes we have people like Tom Hardy, who's excellent and makes consistently god-awful choices, <laughs> with the exception of Venom, which you can hear about on our Patreon episode from last week. Um, but yeah, Destroyer is like, if you imagine a Clint Eastwood cop movie where he's just a grim man with a drinking problem and a dark past and a bad relationship with his daughter. But that character is played by Nicole Kidman, who looks like shit and looks like she smells like shit. And it's it's kind of a revenge thriller, but not like not like framed as a revenge thriller. It's about her trying to capture some criminals that she went undercover with and then the whole thing went bad like 20 years ago. And the kind of 20 years ago sequence has Sebastian Stan playing her boyfriend, which is just just a really delicious, nice little cheery <laughs> morsel. Oh, good. Oh, it's good. He is playing the girlfriend role in this. And he's like, he's got nice soft eyes and he's a sensitive boy. And he's just, oh, just wonderful. Love it. Um, but uh, oh obviously, God. Nicole Kidman gives a tremendous performance in this. Her Her wig not great it's not great i don't have as much of a wig issue as some of morgan and i's mutual friends we have a little group dm where we just complain about bad wigs in movies <laughs> um but um yeah destroyer keep an eye out for it um yeah basically i would just highly recommend this movie unless you just really don't like cop movies for political reasons which i get but i will say this film is not portraying the police in a positive light so <laughs> <laughs> yeah but yeah, um, Beautiful Boy is a film that lots of people are going to be talking about because it stars our boy, Timothy Chalamet. It's a drug movie. It's very conventional. It's based on a memoir. It's about him being a crystal meth addict, but it's um, it's from his father's perspective and his father is played by Steve Carell. It's fine. Whenever I see Steve Carell on the screen, I'm just like, oh, it's Steve. It's very hard for me to like really immerse myself in his characters, which is you know presumably his fault. I think Timmy's performance is great. But I would not say this is like an essential viewing unless you have a crush on Timmy, in which case you're going to be watching it anyway. So like, whatever. But do not mistake this film for like a hot movie of the year just because it's about a serious topic and has the boy from Calm by your name in it because it's an airplane movie. Um, also, a really significant criticism for this one is that Timothy Chalamet does not look like he is a long-term drug addict in this film. He looks beautiful all the way through. They have not given him any meth addict makeup. And I do genuinely think that was a problem. Well, he lost a ton of weight for it. But then they... He's very thin, but I honestly couldn't tell the difference between him anyway. He's already thin. Right. So then you have to actually, like, go the last mile to, He has dewy skin and shiny hair. I saw the, um, either the previous or I guess maybe two films before... The, the director of this, it was called The Broken Circle Breakdown, I think. I think I saw it at the Tribeca Film Festival. I think I was doing press there. This was like five years ago, so maybe he's made a movie in between. But that may have won the Oscar, and everyone liked it, and I thought it was heinous. I hated it so fucking much. It was so just like emotionally manipulative and gross. There's a child with cancer in the movie. That's what the movie's about. You can really imagine where it goes from there. And so when this movie was announced with the director, I was like, I don't trust this. And the reviews have not been great. So I feel like I did when I I looked at the reviews afterwards and I, I did think slightly more of it than the reviews did. I didn't, I didn't think this film was overly schmaltzy. I didn't think it was as good as it probably thought it was. Like, I think this movie is genuinely attempting to be an Oscar contender and it is not, or it shouldn't be. He is, has a good shot of getting a no. I mean, Timmy, absolutely fine. I would accept that. 
But yeah, I mean, I think really the the main the main reason like I would be like, okay, this film is like totally getting a pass from me is that it is it's like a contemporary American movie about addiction, which is like clearly something that needs to get made in the same way that we need media about school shootings and police brutality. Because like those are like the big kind of social issues that are happening in America. But like persistently, the one thing I kept thinking about all the way through the movie, which has nothing to do with like the artistic quality of the film, because it is based on a true story. But I kept just being like, these people are just so fucking rich. Because it's yeah. like, oh, they're like, oh, no, we, will we be able to afford like $40,000 a month of rehab? And I'm like, no one could afford that. So it's like simultaneously a very relatable story and also completely unrelatable because they're like rich as hell. Yeah. Um, but it does sort of, it's like, well, yeah, you know, like rich white people can be drug addicts too. So like, <laughs> um, But I think something that, I th- the other thing that I think it articulates, which is helpful if it, if you're someone who doesn't really know much about addiction or doesn't know anyone who's an addict is that essentially the thesis of the film is that people don't just like magically turn into drug addicts you know people are miserable and then you take drugs because you have other problems as well as the whole like addictive personality thing so it's like you know i think i think that is like a helpful issues movie type thing in general it's whatever um yeah, I have a couple of other movies to, to talk about too on my little list of offcuts. Um, this next one, very simple to summarize because it's the perfect movie genre, which is Maz Mikkelsen, first half, second half at the North Pole. The best two possible factors to have <laughs> in any film. Um, I would have been satisfied by this movie if it was, I would say, if it was like a two star movie, I probably still would have been satisfied, but it was actually perfect. This movie is a thriller where Maz Mikkelsen is stranded in the Arctic Circle and has to survive and about a quarter of the way through finds another survivor who is in a much worse state and essentially has to care for her. Not in a way that is in any way romantic, it's completely platonic and it is just a survival thriller. It is extremely well written. There's basically no dialogue because he's alone with like an unconscious person at the North Pole. It's very gripping. Obviously, we already know that Mads Mikkelsen is an incredible actor, so his performance is great. It's really beautiful. It's really exciting. Everything is completely successful. Well done to everyone involved. So as long as you're not faint-hearted, I would highly recommend that. And my final movie is Outlaw King, which I will just briefly introduce and we will not talk about any further because Morgan has said she would actually quite like to do an episode on this. Which makes me very happy. <laughs> um, but it is it is a Scottish historical epic about Robert the Bruce, who's like a famous sort of Scottish warrior who like freed Scotland from evil tyrants. Think of it as the sequel to Braveheart, but totally nothing like Braveheart because Braveheart is a fucking shit, terrible movie. It sucks. It just is bad. Um, but this one stars um, famous handsome man Chris Pine who is doing an, a Scottish accent which has been officially deemed good by the Scottish First Minister, uh, Nicola Sturgeon. So he's got the, the seal of approval there. And also probably because we brought like a fuck ton of new employees to Scotland to film this movie because um, <laughs> everyone in the entire country, it's like the equivalent of like New Zealand's Lord of the Rings. Everyone here knows someone who made this movie. <laughs> um, this film is not going to be like winning any Lifetime Achievement Awards. It's not like the new Gladiator or anything. But it's really sincere. It's not like, here's a really grim story about depressing men in grey rain. It's like, here's a really sincere underdog hero who's going to beat a really cartoonishly evil villain. And then we'll have a nice panning shot of some Scottish countryside uh, with folk music. 
And also, crucially, it stars Florence Pugh, um, who is one of the best actresses of her generation. It's insane to me that she's only 22. She's so fucking good. It's horrible. Um, She is literally just playing the wife role in this. It's completely, completely a wife role. She's amazing in it. Other people, like, if if you just hired, like, a rando sort of, like, first-timer in this, it would just be, like, whatever. But she's just so good. But we will discuss that more at length. It is a Netflix movie, so you will be able to see it on your little laptops um, next month, like in two weeks or something. And you may know this about me, but I enjoy the histories. So I will be able to, <laughs> I will be able to divulge some info about these folks. I can't wait. I'm just, yeah. I'm pumped. So it has excited. Aaron Taylor-Johnson playing an absolute psychopath. And I have a feeling they cut a lot of his scenes because they, they, they significantly cut this for length between film festivals. But yeah. More, more to come. Yeah. We will also be, so you saw Suspiria, but we are not going to talk about that right now because we're yeah. going to do a full length episode on that um, quite soon. And I also just wanted to mention that I saw the new Claire Denis movie, High Life, starring Robert Pattinson. Oh my God, I forgot to mention my Kristen Stewart movie. <laughs> yeah. So I saw High Life. I'm not going to talk about it here. I wrote a little thing about it on the Patreon if anyone wants to read my thoughts there. They are also very circuitous because it is basically impossible to talk about this movie without spoiling it. And I feel it is a crime to spoil this movie. I think I'm it's really probably, excited. I know nothing and I'm excited. I think it's the best thing I saw. Um, it's one of the most disturbing things I've ever seen in my life without exaggeration. It's so fucked up. Like, I... I I, I'm sitting here just like making guttural noises because it's so awful. <laughs> um, but it's great. So uh, I want us to do a full episode about that next year when it comes out to the general public. Uh, it is being released by A24, a real distribution company here in April, um, which is going to be a big thing, I suspect. And I think it'll probably come out in the UK around the same time. So that's just a, just a thing to, to mention that, That'll be coming to you in the future. Um, but it really, you just can't talk about it without spoiling it. It's impossible. Yeah. So I am, yeah. I am hyped. And it's before wild. we sign off, I am just going to mention the Christmas Jewelry movie because I just feel like our listeners need to be aware of it for those who are not <laughs> keeping up to date on every indie film, which I completely understand because that's why you have us. But Christmas Stewart, bless her heart, every year makes at least one sort of low to mid budget lesbian thriller. And by golly, she's done it again. <laughs> um, it's it's a Lizzie Borden movie. Um, it's not like it's a Kristen Stewart movie, although that is how I personally think of it. It is actually a Chloe Sibigny movie. What is nuts about this is that when I saw it, it was a screening where the, the director did a Q&A afterwards. And he was like, yes, this is Chloe Sibigny's first leading role. And it's like, how the fuck is that true? Um, but apparently it is. Like, she's been trying to produce this movie for like 10 years. Um, it is a film about the famed axe murderer, Lizzie Borden. It's really good. Um, Kristen Stewart plays her housemaid slash girlfriend and it's kind of taking Lizzie's side and sort of portraying the lifestyle that she was living in, like this really oppressive situation with awful parents who are controlling her life and no hope of any kind of happiness in her future. And it's like, maybe there's a reason why you murder your parents with an axe. Um, But it's just really interestingly characterised and sort of tense um, without being like a full-on horror film and um obviously both of the lead actors just are wonderful 
talented, skilled people who are really good at just sort of having micro expressions in their faces. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. You know, I don't need to tell you that Kristen Stewart and Chloe Sabini are good at their jobs. They're very good at their jobs. Yeah, I got to catch that one. I think it came out here for like one week. And like, yeah. it's just not enough time, but it will be on streaming soon, I'm sure. Kristen is playing Irish and vulnerable in this, which I was not expecting. All right. Yeah. Done. Yeah. She's like a little vulnerable little mouse. <laughs> and I was like, you just give me so much. <laughs> oh, she's great. I can't wait for her and Robert Pattinson to make a movie together. In oh, 20 God, years. yeah. God, it's yeah. Be beautiful. <laughs> um, all right. That wraps up our New York Film Festival and London Film Festival coverage for 2018. Thank you for listening. Thanks to everyone who uh, signed up to support us on Patreon in the last week. There were many of you. Um, I guess you all wanted to listen to our Venom mini-sode, which was really delightful to us. Um, or maybe you wanted to access other things. But I, whatever you wanted from us, uh, we're very, very grateful. Was really, we were delighted to see all of the new people. If you would also like to subscribe to our Patreon, you, you can find us at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very excited by the number of people who just joined us because they helped to pay for my Airbnb while I was at the London Film Festival. Yeah, so. <laughs> um, if you did enjoy the coverage that we just provided, um, this was not a cheap expenditure for either of us to cover these things. So please give us money. Uh, and if you do, we can go to more film festivals in the future and potentially larger and more exciting ones in other countries. So just a thought. Thanks again. And you can find us at www.overinvestedpodcast.com on Twitter at overinvestedpod or on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. Thanks. Bye.